You are listening to the Family Business Podcast, the podcast aimed at delivering insights to help your family business thrive. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and each week I'll be bringing you interviews from family businesses and their advisors from all over the world. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Well, hello and welcome to the Family Business Podcast. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and this week we are speaking to Martin Stepek. Now, Martin is the Chief Exec of the Scottish Family Business Association, um, but he's on the show wearing um, two hats. And I don't mean literally wearing two hats, um, but uh, we're going to be talking about his own family business experience. But also what he does now is um, teach and practice mindfulness, which is an area that fascinates me. And uh, I think its application um, can help and benefit people and businesses uh, around the world. Um, so we'll be talking to Martin about that. So firstly, Martin, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks very much, Ross. Uh, delighted to be here. Um, as I say, we're going to be talking about a couple of aspects um, today, and, and given that it's the, the family business podcast, perhaps we could start with the, the family business um, element. Um, our audience may recall in our interview with um, Mary Mickle, um, Mary mentions that you had a, a huge role to play in um, her uh, sort of progression in the family business uh, world, um, and you're somebody who, who um, we've heard a, a lot about, um, but perhaps you'd like to sort of tell us your um, your story? Yeah, sure. Um, it's really kind of Mary to do that. I mean, she's brilliant at what she does. And I guess I just helped her maybe understand both the the lessons that she could bring from her own family back, um, history background um, to help others and also maybe some ways to move in that territory. Um, and if I was able to help, that's that's great. Um, I was born into a business family, quite a remarkable um, story, which I'll, I'll maybe touch on a little bit later. But essentially, my father was a, a refugee from Poland who had been sent to labour camps in the Soviet Union. His mother died of starvation. His father died in the Polish resistance. And his little sister was three stone 12 at the age of 15. So an unbelievably difficult and tragic um, circumstance yeah. and he couldn't go back to Poland after the Second World War because it was occupied by the people who had taken them away to the labour camps, i.e. Stalin's Soviet Union. My mother was a Scot um, from an Irish background, um, from a mining family and her father died when she was eight so my grandmother brought up 11 kids in Lanarkshire through the depression in the Second World War on a miner's widow's pension. So it was staggering difficulty um, when they met in, in Glasgow and, and, and married. And my dad had been a radar operator in the Polish Navy. And um, so he knew about electronics, he knew about radios, essentially. So he started repairing radios um, in his alleged spare time from his full-time job in Scotland. Uh -huh. And my mum and dad both agreed very early on that they would set up in business on their own. So um, they did that in the late 1940s, early 50s, and then television started becoming popular with the coronation of the present queen. Mm -hmm. um, and so they did a deal to open a shop, and then we became, you know, fast forward 20, 30 years, 
became the largest independent electrical retailer in Scotland with travel agency chain, furniture shops. We did our own financial services. So we were a, a top 500 Scottish business. Uh-huh. But as well as opening shops, my dad also, with my mum, obviously with my mum, started having lots of children. So I'm, I'm one of 10 kids wow. born in 1950 and 66. And that started the usual complexity that family businesses face, but in our case, uh-huh. a mammoth scale of complexity. <laughs> yeah. um, and so we grew up within a family business background as, as children, and we were press ganged into working on weekends and holidays like happened in family businesses, certainly mm-hmm. at that time. So I did my first day's work at nine in the family business, taking cash in one of the shops. And by the time I was studying for my Scottish equivalent of my A-level, of your A-levels, um, in England, um, I was teaching new starts in three different departments in the business mm-hmm. in the holidays. So by the time I was 16, 17, I knew enough to actually be a trainer, you know, for, for, for new employees, you know, and in, in inductions and things. Yeah. So we blossomed as a family business and we were hugely successful and a very close, loving family. But that was when things started going awry a bit, when the next generation started going into work in the business. Uh-huh. My father had already given us shares in the business without any discussion, without any expert advice about the pros and cons. Now, this is in the late 70s, early 80s. So it's before most of the academic and theory of um, family business really hit our shores. So we were thrown into being business partners together as a sibling group um, and that started causing complications when we started working together because with all the best will in the world some people have got a greater aptitude than others yeah. others have got a better attitude than others and some people just put more into it than others and when you're coming from a, an egalitarian love-based system like a family should be and then all of a sudden you're putting those same people into a is normally a merit-based and merit-rewarded situation, then uh-huh. it starts highlighting the differences between you. And, and we found ourselves as a family who were really close and um, ripping ourselves apart um, in, in a civilised manner. Right. But, but you could see the family were splintering and falling apart. And, then, and could you see that at the time? Was that something that, that you were aware of? Or, or in hindsight, you could say, well, actually, now, now it's, we've been really through it. Really good question. We were feeling it at the time, but not able to articulate it at the time. But we were then very, very fortunate. In 1995, um, uh, a brilliant young um, academic who I'm not sure if you've spoken with her before or no, but certainly would recommend her, Barbara Murray, who at that time Barbara Dunn and Barbara managed to persuade Glasgow Caledonian University to set up a centre for family enterprise which I think was the first in the UK and maybe one of the first in Europe and we received the the advertising um, info about it um, one day through the office doors and we thought we felt that we should be there and they were bringing in people like John Ward you know and Mm-hmm. Brown and, and other of the great American um, originators of family business theory. And they were coming so from Harvard and Loyola and places like that, coming to Glasgow and giving us 
really off the press, you know, latest thinking. And it was transformative for us because we started to understand that these tensions weren't really about us. They were about us in this system. Uh-huh. And because there were so many of us all married, so everybody's got an opinion. Yeah. Um, that we were just the natural consequences of, of where we were. So that got us thinking. Um, and we were thinking all sorts of ways of starting to change things. And some of those didn't go down too well with certain family members because moving towards a more professional structure then meant that some people were greater rewarded and other people were le- had a lesser reward. Right. So we had to talk about all that, and that was hard and difficult. We'd set up family meetings and everything, and they, they went well, but except for coming to conclusions. Right. <laughs> so, so we could talk about issues, which was, was half the battle, but it was only half. Yeah. So we then hit a series of really difficult business times, um, which partly caused by Scottish government, or not Scottish government, UK government changing uh-huh. premium tax. When we had 20,000, 30,000 rental goods, televisions and videos out on rental. People used to rent TVs and videos before they uh-huh. buy. And it changed entirely the profit structure. And if you just bumped up the prices, then all the customers would just hand in their old rentals. Mm-hmm. We ended up with a flood of um, product that you couldn't use. So we had to ride it out, but we lost 1.6 million, I think, in a single year. Wow. Just, just like that, just because of a government decision. Wow. And the bank then sort of started getting tough with us. And we went into administration in 2002. Now, we could have bought some of it out, but we looked at each other. And we, because by this time, we had six or seven years of family business education and training. We saw that it would be very difficult for us as a family to be healed, knitted together again if we were still in this business. So we made a a very profound but difficult decision to not try and get back in business together, Uh rather to allow the business to be sold off, which was unbelievably painful because both the the legacy of my parents' um, astonishing work coming from such a difficult background on the one hand, but it was also... I grew up with all these folk, you know, I mean, 350 employees. We knew every single one. Some mm-hmm. of them played football with as kids. You know, some of them we had gone to their parties. Some of them we had gone to their weddings. We knew how many children, what age of children were. So it was a real, as in classic family business culture, it mm-hmm. was a real extended family. And it was heartbreaking to not only let that go, but to see it break up. Um, because it wasn't just us and our employees, it was the employees as friends together as well. Yeah. So, but it was the right thing for us as a family because immediately that happened, we started a process of clear, deliberate attempt to re-heal as a family. And, and it worked um, totally. And so a few years down the line, everybody was back to being the loving, caring family that they were. One other thing I would just add, if I may, um, from I reckon of the 10 children, eight of whom worked in the business at one point, um, of the 10 children who became shareholders in the business, I would reckon seven or eight were happier or most fulfilled when they had nothing to do with the business and were able to flourish in their own direction. Right. Rather than being the unwitting 
recipient of a, a role and a duty in a family business. Yeah. So, uh, that was... That that was in retrospect we saw that, uh-huh. and certainly for me, that that was the case in a in a huge way. And I guess t- taking some positives from from the the obviously very difficult time that the family went through, you'd have needed to have cut, for that to have happened to have been able to see that there was life outside of the the family business, and um, perhaps our, our audience don't necessarily need to go through that pain in order to perhaps understand that they're there is life outside the family business. It's not a, um, a, a necessary that you, you have to go into that. Yes, I think that one of the key things, or the key messages we try and get across in, in the family business association is to try not to feel too tied up into the family business. Mm. Just because it's family doesn't mean that you have to live in servitude to it. Yeah, um, That you can be a part of the family business, either formally or informally, um, you know, share ownership, employee, um, or just a pe- person in the family with a, an emotional tie to it. Mm. Um, you can be that without feeling that you're going to betray the family if you stop doing that. You know, that there's some kind of um, tribal loyalty required. Yeah. Um, and from a parental point of view, you know, I've now got two adult children, you know, in their 20s. You know, I would hate my family, my children, to feel stuck in, in, in an enterprise or in anybody or organisation that they didn't feel that they could fulfil their lives in. Mm. And we need to be creative and we need to be tolerant and we need to be encouraging of our, our next generation and senior generation, if they, if they feel that way, to be able to leave the family business or to connect with it in another way. Mm-hmm. I'll tell just one very brief anecdote. The very first event we had as the Scottish Family Business Association, um, which was set up by, the idea was George Stevenson, who was a family business owner, very good friend of mine, mm-hmm. and he asked me if I would, if I would run it um, from, from scratch. So that was 2005. So in January 2006, we did an a sort of inaugural event down in Dumfries near the border with England. And... I did a talk on family business. I told our family business story and I talked about the theory. And at the end of it, an elderly couple, by elderly, I mean sort of mid-60s, I think, um, they came to me and said, that's the first time we've ever heard anybody speak about family business. And that was amazing. Mm. I was thinking, great, great start. And I said, so have you taken anything away from it? And they said, yeah, we're going to sell the business when we get home. <laughs> <laughs> wow. My goodness, if, if I keep doing that, the Scottish economy is going to drop within the <laughs> um, But I said, well, what makes you think that? And it was so emotional. Um, the husband said, I inherited this from my father when I was 30, and I've hated every day of it. Um, wow. And the said, I've been telling them that we should try and do our own life, our own way, for all of those 30 years. And now we're going to do it, and with the time we've got left, we're going to enjoy our life. Uh-huh. No, it was so salutary. Um, now, that's obviously not the case for the majority of family businesses, mm. but uh, it would be very interesting if someone would do a, an in-depth, long-term study and see how many people in family businesses love being in it, Yeah. Some, how many are fine with being in it, and how many feel thwarted in some way Yeah. being part of it. And I think 
the figures would maybe surprise people. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think part of our role, as a day job, I'm a, a financial planner. Yep. Uh, and we try to um, uh, expel that the, the, our most valuable resource is time. And that we can't get any more time. The time we've got is the time we've Absolutely. got. So, so um, spending that time doing something that you're not passionate and, and that you love doing it's often not until you get to a reflective stage in life that you realize that that time could have been better spent. And I think there's often pressure within um, a family business to, to feel as though the family business is the route that you have to take. Whereas, you know, improving communication and talking about it and getting it out in the open, it, it may be that everybody is, is happier that that isn't the case anyway. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I mean, one of the interesting things from our family uh, history was that we were never pressured in any way to join the family business. Uh-huh. We were never even encouraged to join the family business, and yet we still did. Yeah. And I think a lot of that was about there is friendship there, there is security there, not even thinking about career, but just that that was a place you knew well and you knew how to do it well. Uh-huh working school holidays and the like yeah uh, so you've been working for 10 years knowing the business before you even thought about a job after university for example uh-huh. and so we joined despite that and interestingly at the very start of the centers for family enterprise work in 1995 my eldest brother john young eldest son also called john who's now editor of money week uh-huh. uh, young young john stepic wrote I think his first ever article, you know, as a, as a sort of would-be journalist. And he called it the marshmallow effect. And it was about the summer that he spent in our family business. Right. And he called it the marshmallow effect because it's sweet and it's tasty and it looks great. But when you're in it, you can get stuck in it and it's not necessarily healthy for you. Right. You know, it was a great metaphor. Yeah, know? absolutely. 19 at the time when he wrote that. Wow. And I think that's... That's something that all families should be discussing, not trying to project for or against the family business, but just as you said, just learning the skills to have open discussion about what life's about, what opportunities are available, and whether the family business fits that. Mm. And it might um, sound counterintuitive to to say this, but there's a lot of statistics that that are, are flying around about um, the success of family businesses and the success is measured by the ability to pass a business from one generation to another. Yeah. But it's perhaps a, a better way to define success is that everybody within that family system and that family unit is happy and fulfilled because if that means either selling the business or, or getting somebody else in to, to run it, that could be the right thing for everybody and a success for everybody, but it would be deemed as a failure from a, a kind of a, an academic perspective. Yeah, again, 100% agree. I think that when people started getting interested in family business as a subject, um, they were coming at it from scratch. You know, there'd be no sort of previous track record other than what we would call, main, ironically, mainstream business, although of course, <laughs> we all know that family businesses are mainstream yeah. businesses. So you're basically the PLC or the sort of entrepreneur, build it up and sell it. Mm-hmm. And the, 
if you look at family businesses through those lenses, then yes, longevity and passing on from generation to generation, you know, seems to be the definition of success. But certainly, as, as I mean, I've been now practicing mindfulness for over 20 years and teaching it since 2004. Mm. And the more I have looked into that way of seeing life, you know, about clarity and what matters in the present moment matters and, and compassion for other people, you start to look and see it completely differently. That all that matters is exactly what you said, which is the happiness and health and fulfillment of individuals mm. as individuals and in groups as families and in groups as companies or organizations. And if you take that as your definition of success, then you can start to decide whether the business or part of the business or a job in the business is going to add to that possibility of success or mm. or detract from it. Yeah. yeah. But it, what it does is it changes the conversation and it changes the param, parameters and the paradigm that you're, that you're, you're aiming things in. Absolutely. Uh, and just sort of go, going back to the, um, when you were given um, shares as, as um, you and your siblings, mm -hmm. uh, was that done on an equal basis? Oh, well, there, there's a story. <laughs> yes, in theory, but no in practice. Right. It, it was one of those classic tail wagging the dog things. And you'll know this pretty well as a financial advisor, you know, the, the, the bad way of looking at financial advice. Um, so my, this was in the late 70s. So it was still when Labour government were in charge, uh -huh. Harold Wilson, then um, Jim Callan. So a long time ago, and then the early stages of Mrs. Thatcher coming in. So it was a period of turmoil. And no business is like turmoil. Uh -huh. And people don't like to plan financially in periods of uncertainty because you don't know if it's going to change six months later or whatever. So my father's lawyers and accountants, and my dad was a, a brilliantly educated and aware person in terms of finance and taxation and uh -huh. you know, use of money. And he was just a complete natural at it. So he was mostly advising the advisors. You know, <laughs> about. So anyway, dad was um, advised and he took the advice that in certain years, you should be starting to put down your share ownership, therefore your wealth, um, his and my mum's, um, into the next generation, some in trust, some directly, depending on age, because uh -huh. obviously the legislation changes with each year as well. But so you, you were able to do so to a certain amount each year. And so the idea was to try and pass it on equally to all 10. But because of the laws always changing and maybe advisors changing, then I think they just stopped actually checking to see if everybody was getting everything exactly right. Right. So what was meant to be 10 kids getting 10% each ended up being skewed from 16% to 5%. Right. When a business that was worth something like 15 million, you know, and that's theoretically... Everybody's a millionaire yeah. way back in the early 80s. Um, now, so that was very badly handled. Um, but you could understand that's the tail wagging the dog. Yes. How do you do this by saving tax? How do you do this in the most tax-efficient way? And, and nobody's thinking about how, what is this going to have implications for next okay. Moreover, nobody even thought about asking the question, do you want shares in the business? 
I mean, I didn't find out till three years after I was given them. I'm sure I must have signed something. <laughs> um, but I was given them, and I was, I was a student. I was studying law at the time, you know, at Strathclyde University. And, and maybe it was just as well I didn't find out it was a on paper million, <laughs> 18, 20 years old. But, but now, in hindsight, and with the understanding of how family businesses work as a system and as a dynamic, then to learn what the pros and cons of owning a business are, you know, is surely vital to someone deciding whether they would do that or not. Mm. And being told that you're going to be a business partner with all your brothers and sisters and having discussions about the pros and cons of that, we might have come to very different decisions. Yeah. And, and that was never afforded us, if you like. And I guess that's where... Um help and assistance from, from people who understand that there are different systems at play within a family business because obviously you've got the, the business system, the ownership system and the family system. That, and we hear it quite often when we talk to family businesses and we present the, the three-circle model, which mm-hmm. um, we, we've covered briefly in a, in a previous episode. When people understand that and see that those systems are in play, a, a light bulb seems to come on and go, yes, I, I get that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there doesn't seem to be a huge awareness of um, that kind of um, system side. Whereas if people were made aware of it whilst making these decisions about their futures and understood the implications of that, it would potentially help them make better decisions, which I think is what you, you were saying then. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I, and one of the frustrations of running the Scottish Family Business Association, um, which I've set up as a charity, so it was a non-profit um, organisation from the start. I didn't yeah. want people to come to us thinking these people have got two different objectives. One is to make money and the other one is to try and help us. Yeah. I wanted it to be simple and, and I certainly thought of it from my side of things that if there had been a, a charity or an organisation that was non-profit, looking to help family businesses, I would have been interested. So it was mm-hmm. kind of from that perspective, we decided to make it that way. And one of the frustrations has been the reticence of so many family businesses to educate themselves about being a family business. Mm. And there's, there's something about, uh, it's wrong to generalise in family businesses, of course, um, but very many of them are either too busy or too insular or claim to be both, um, mm-hmm. to get out there and learn about, I think, the deeper aspects of being a family business or owning a family business mm. um, than they would, for example, being involved in their trade body yeah. or, or educating themselves about finance and sales and marketing and, mm. and IT and digital stuff. Um, and ironically, I think it's, it's fundamentally more important yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, I, I think that that, that would be, um, the, again, one of the, the issues that we um, come across and some feedback we've received is that people don't know where to turn to. Um, and I think the the phrase I use when I, when I talk about um, family businesses is that they are collectively unique in the sense that the, the individual relationships that occur within those family systems are unique to that family, but the dynamic around it and, and the commonality of the issues that arise within that are very, very common. And I think half the challenge is people think, well, no one else has had to deal with a dad like my dad, <laughs> or no one has had to deal with my brother. 
Um, and yeah. whilst that might be true in, in, in an individual sense, the character traits or, or the, um, the dynamics at play within that family system are common across the board, aren't they? Yes, and I think that's, that's a, a lovely way to present it. There's, everyone's unique, but there are shared traits yeah. and there are shared and predictable issues and there are shared and predictable methods of dealing with issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and if people can understand that, yes, every because of the uniqueness of each family system, you know, with, with these various individuals in it, you therefore need to tailor the understanding of the particular issue that mm-hmm. most family businesses have got in common. So it's a tailored version of it and therefore requires a tailored understanding and set, set of solutions yeah. to help them. Um, so it's always uniquely tailored, but it's not uniquely tailored starting from scratch with a non-understanding of any possible ways forward. Completely. Completely. Fantastic. So well, obviously your time within a family business, there was, there was success, uh, and then uh, ultimately the, the business um, went into administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you mentioned at that stage that there was... Uh, a period of reconciliation within the family. Who drove that? Who drove it? Um, I was certainly a large part of it. Um, I'll hopefully say that without any undue immodesty. Um, uh-huh. I understood very clearly, um, and this again, just touching mindfulness for a second. I started practicing in 1998 and we yeah. administration in 2002. So by that time, I had four years of trying to understand how our emotions work and whether they're healthy for us or not and what you can do about it. And so I'd started gaining greater clarity about what the business was doing to us and, and what parts of the business were healthy for us as a family and what weren't and all that. Uh-huh. So when the, the business collapsed and, and we decided to go our separate ways, I was crystal clear that my siblings and their spouses were a hugely important part of my life uh-huh. and a hugely important, important part of each other's lives, despite the disagreements and the frustrations and the angers and all that. Yeah. And so I was consciously trying to pull things together. My sister, my elder sister, was part of that as well, my younger sister. It's interesting, there's eight boys and two girls, uh-huh. the 10 sibling group, and both of the, the women were there as bridge builders. Uh-huh. My parents were both involved, and my dad in a classic top-down way, and my mum in a much more collegiate kind of way. Uh-huh. So there were enough of us working to, to remould um, and let bygones be bygones and, and try and also then bring in family get-togethers again mm-hmm. and, and make sure that we were seeing each other, you know, which continues to this day, uh, yeah. not as frequently because I've got a brother in Vancouver, one in Faro in Poland and another in Hague. Um, but, you know, we're still getting together um, and that's extremely healthy. Yeah. And so that was... I don't know if I would have had the wisdom to do that um, or my sisters have the wisdom to do that if we hadn't had some of the family business education. Mm-hmm. Um, and also then on top of that, my own mindfulness education. Yeah. And you mentioned that the, the, 
a BBC article back from, is it 2013, I think, mm. um, that sort of uh, tells your, your father's story, which, as you say, is a, it's a horrific story. If you sort of read the details of it, and we'll put a link in, in the show notes. Yeah, um, but, but you say in that that the relationship with your father changed and, and you became significantly closer to him. Um, sort of um, as he grew up, grew older. Yeah. Again, was there a change or was there a shift in him that, that brought that about? Yeah, you can never tell precisely, you know, who's doing the shifting. Um, uh-huh. Certainly, as you get older, then I think, as you mentioned, sort of, sort of private conversation to me in email that you know that you get to a certain stage where you become reflective and yeah. classic stages of a person's life maybe in their 40s that and at that time I started thinking I know very little about my father you know I know him at, at some level completely intimately and intensely but in terms of his early life he wasn't keeping it from us but he wasn't telling us at all, mm-hmm. you know, out loud. And, you know, like I didn't know my grandparents' names. Um, they both died in the war. Um, I didn't know what the name of the town the family came from. I didn't know where dad was born. You know, even place names. Um, and I knew a vague story of them getting taken to the, to Siberia and then ending up in what's now Iran. Yeah. But so at that stage, and I think it's possibly also because I now had my children, you know, and, and thinking, you know, they don't know anything about their grandfather. They think he's this nice old guy and yeah. you know, they don't know the half of it. So dad then had a series of strokes in the year 2000, 2001. Uh-huh. He was going to die. And when, thankfully, he didn't, I thought, now, now that he's back to talking again and remembering again, I'm going to soak every single detail of his life from him. Mm. because. Now I realised that that heritage part and that legacy part is so important. Yeah. Uh, and I did that with him and um, over a couple of years, and then with his two sisters who both survived Siberia as well, and all three of them lived till their 90s. It was astonishing. Wow. And Dad had malaria, dysentery, and typhus in the same year, and you know he was six months in a, an army hospital, sort of looking skeletal like a Holocaust survivor. Yeah. So. There's a resilience in that, the gene pool and in that survival mechanism mm-hmm. that I wanted to understand and I wanted to share with, with initially just my kids. And I thought I was going to write a book about this. And what turned out was I was starting to write a whole series of poems about what happened to them, just as a sort of catharsis from some of the, the horror of it all. Because mm. um, they were just teenagers when this was happening to them. Yeah. And then publisher heard me read some of the poems and said they wanted to publish it so I inadvertently became an author and that then continued thereafter but it was about I think my dad softened when he got seriously unwell for the first time Mm. I think he saw his own mortality never scared to death but he saw his own mortality he also started to see that he couldn't do everything independently and he was doing that till he was in his early 80s Right. And he'd been chairman of Hamilton Ackies, the football club, right until he was 80 years old. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden now, he knew he was, in health terms, fragile. Yeah. Um, he didn't balk at it, so he got back to playing golf. And he, he fought it all the way, but he knew he was declining. 
in mm. him. And, and that made him softer. And the only word you can describe it, he mm. was more approachable, more tolerant, less impatient. And, and I took advantage of that in the, the most constructive form of that. Yeah. Um, and I was able to ask him the, the even now painful questions, you know, when was the last time you saw your mother alive? Yeah. And this is in Kazakhstan and they're all starving and waiting for redemption, basically. And um, his mother said to him, Dad's 19 at the time, um, go and try and find the Polish troops and enlist with them because they had heard that they were in the environment, you know, sort of 80 miles away or something. Uh -huh. um, and Dad says, but what about you and, and my sisters? And she said, whatever happens to us happens. Your duty is to your country. And he never saw her again. She died wow. of starvation. And he must have thought, had I still been there, would she have died? Yeah. Live with that for 70 years. And I had to ask the question, you know, as I did with the same question to his two sisters. Mm. Um, so very, but that was also amazingly intimate and loving and personal. And that kind of bonded us in a way that, yeah. um, that a normal conversation couldn't. Mm. And I guess uh, I, I'm trying to choose my words carefully here when, mm. when I say you're fortunate to have had that experience. And I don't mean that in, in the sense that it's a fortunate set of circumstances, but to, to, to be able to have those conversations and, and to have that yeah. insight into to what your family had been through yeah, must have I, been yeah, fulfilling I, for you. I've done um, quite a bit of research on the, the, the surroundings of that story, you know, yeah. what was going on in World War II and Poland and the Soviet Union and Persia and, and all those other areas. And through that, I've got to know an awful lot of people around the world through the, the beauty of social media mm -hmm. um, whose families went through similar things. I mean, you're talking about you know, 1.7 million Poles were taken. Yeah. So this wasn't a small number of people. And um, what I found was that many of them the parents weren't willing to speak to them or they never asked and then they died and the next generation didn't get the chance to ask the questions. Mm. So I've got my two aunts on film, I've got them on audio, I've got my dad on audio, you know, and you know, I've written a book of poems about them. I've got a book about my dad, early part of his life coming to Scotland, um, coming out later this year and None of that would have been possible. Um, and, yeah, so I completely agree with no caveats at all when you're saying I was fortunate. Yeah. I was really, really, really fortunate. And I would urge anyone listening to this, get a microphone, get your mobile phone, yeah. video, and just bug the hell out of your parents. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very easy to do, isn't it? I, I mean, the smartphones now, you, you press yeah. two buttons and you're recording. So. Exactly, and you don't even need to... It doesn't even need to look professional. You, what needs to be done is to be captured. Yeah, completely. And uh, we've touched on this slightly uh, already, but you started looking at mindfulness whilst you were still in the business. Mm -hmm. Was it what was happening within the business that drew you to mindfulness? Or, uh, again, yeah. is that something in hindsight you think, or maybe it was no, sort of looking for a way out? One was crystal clear. It wasn't so much looking for a way out. It was understanding that 
running a family business as a business didn't trouble me at all. Uh-huh. I was reluctant to join the family business. I didn't actually feel a businessman. But when I joined, I found I loved the intrigue of it, the challenge of it, the intellectual challenge, the multifaceted way that you have to think about business. Um, and that appealed to me, although I've always had and still have my concerns about the ethics in some business and inequality in, you know, and, and, and in our country and things like that. But despite all that, I was really enjoying the business and I didn't find it stressful in any way. But I found working with the people I loved, i.e. my brothers and sisters and family, very stressful because there were all these issues where we disagreed with each other and disagreed honestly with each other. Uh-huh. Because they were family, you felt you couldn't override, even though you were the boss or whatever you know, position, because it would be family clashing. And yeah. then their spouse would talk to your spouse about it afterwards and try and get you to make changes to decisions. And yeah. I'd be going home and my wife would be saying to me, what can, why can you have to deal with all these things in the family business? Yeah. Can't we just have a life? So it was causing stress. The family side of it was causing stress. So I started looking for things and it just by chance, um, we were going to go to Germany one day on a, a holiday that was based around a, a week or a kids camp for our children. Um, and I, we were into Borders Bookshop in Glasgow, one of the beautiful bookshops in the world when it was there. Mm. And I was looking actually at IT stuff, you know, about designing a website for the business. Mm-hmm. How little I thought about going on a holiday for a break. I was going to bring a book about the business on holiday with me. Yeah. Um, and out the corner of my eye, I saw a bright orange display. And it was the Dalai Lama promoting, well, not him personally, but books about the Dalai Lama promoting mm-hmm. sort of happiness and the art of happiness, I think it was. And I thought, I know nothing about Buddhism. I know nothing about these meditations that they talk about. And I've always been intellectually curious. You know, mm-hmm. so it was something I thought, and, and I'm, I'm skeptical about religions. So I thought, I know what, why don't I just book, buy a book that tells me about Buddhism? I'll totally disagree with it. I think it's a lot of rubbish, but at least I'll know about it. Yeah. And that was my skeptical, cynical mindset. And as part of that, there was a book called Buddhism Plain and Simple. Um, by an American uh, Zen priest called Steve Hagen. And it promised in the back to have stripped away all the cultural bits, all the religious bits, and get back to what the guy was trying to teach. And what the guy was trying to teach was mental well-being and the abolition or the eradication of your inner suffering. Uh-huh. Well, that sounds like me. I'll read this book and I'll see. And I was gobsmacked at how scientific it was, how yeah. modern it was, the thinking behind it. And it mentioned mindfulness was originally part of Buddhism, um, the seventh of the eight paths that he recommended people to take. And the okay. mindfulness was the ability to notice what's going on, especially internally, but also externally, and to cultivate that natural skill. Mm. More aware, more self-aware, because once you're self-aware, you can start to deal with some of your emotions and your traits as they're building up, rather than letting them all out and causing the havoc that they tend to cause. And yeah. then over the long term, you start to become more and more in control and clarity and calmness developing you. And that's now Harvard University, Oxford University, UCLA. I've done all the research on this and it's, it's very strongly evidence-based. So that basically kept me sane through the last four years of the, the business, 
being in turmoil. Right. And uh, we're talking late 90s and, you know, mental health is um, quite a, a common thing to be talking about now. The, the stigma is, is perhaps still there, mm-hmm. but, but is less so now. But back in the late 90s, that wasn't the case. There was still quite a stigma around it. And I guess, yeah. again, it's knowing where to turn and where to look for, for help in these um, areas. As I, as I say, I, I was very fortunate, again, in finding mindfulness through that sort of chance need and looking around a bookshop. Yeah. Um, the, I just practiced it myself just from that one book for about two years. Um, and then I found there was a, a group, a Tibetan Buddhist group, doing something locally. And so I started going to a weekly class there and I was with them for six years because there were no mindfulness teachers at all in Britain at that time. Right. No, a book on mindfulness in Britain at the time. Um, and nobody had ever heard of it. Nobody I knew had even heard of it. Um, so I was doing this very much on my own. And I was asked to become a teacher of Buddhist philosophy, psychology and ethics. And I said to the head of the order, but I don't believe in rebirth or reincarnation. I don't believe your version of karma. Uh-huh. I can't teach these things. That, you know, you're asking me to teach things I don't believe. And what he said was, was gobsmacking. He said, teach it and then say you don't believe it and have a discussion about it. Right. And I thought, whoa, that's not how I was brought up. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's all my mum's church. Um, and so I, I went, said, okay, what does this becoming a teacher entail? Thinking academic stuff, I can do that. Um, and it was a month away from home, two weeks doing 14 hours meditation a day, 14 days mm. in a row, followed by two weeks in silence on my own. No, wow. paper, no paper, no music, no books. Um, and what they say, they said, they told me afterwards, is that 80% of people chuck it, quit, and they don't last the month, and it's the lasting the month that is the last qualification, because they were more than stuff. So that was me in the pre-scientific version of mindfulness, Uh and then obviously followed through with the secular scientific stuff as it started coming through. Um, But it was amazing, um, and incredibly insightful for family businesses as well. And I guess those those periods of silence and and meditation you talk about sort of fourteen hours a day for for a considerable mm. amount of time that that can seem really scary to to some people because you're you're alone with your own thoughts and I'm guessing it, it perhaps a, a point for clarification in terms of mindfulness is the point of it is to be aware of what is happening right now not not to dwell on what's happened in the past or to worry or be concerned about what's happening in the future. Is that right? Yeah, it's the classic definition is paying attention on purpose to what's going on in the present moment uh-huh. without judging it, condemning it, or congratulating yourself for having it. It's just, it's almost like you are taking an objective scientific perspective of observation. Right. Being it. So, I mean, what I now call, you know, glib, non-technical terms, crap. Crap comes into my head. Uh-huh. So selfishness, something petty. You know, like a driver in front of me is a, a, a first-time learner and I'm trying to get to a meeting. I want to go to 29.9%, uh, 29.9 miles an hour, yeah. going 20. And irritation crops up in my head. And normally what a person does is they just experience the irritation and they might swear out loud or say, for God's sake, you know, get blooming quicker. Yeah. They shout out. And there's nobody in the car that can hear them. I notice this arising in me nearly all the time when it happens. 
and I just notice that that's all it is. It's just stuff that's arisen in my head. Yeah. I don't need to buy into it. I don't need to be swallowed up by it. I can just watch it and let it fall away because it will uh-huh. fall away. Yeah. Or if it's particularly strong, I can then divert it by focusing on my breath or even just focusing on my hands in the steering wheel. Uh-huh. So you're taking your attention to something neutral or pleasant. Breath is always pleasant. And this emotion is allowed to die a natural death yeah. without igniting inside you, without harming anybody around you. And you're also not feeding it for the future. Yeah. And one analogy I've um, heard of uh, a form of mindfulness is to imagine the, so thoughts are just thoughts and uh, imagine them as leaves on a river and and you're sat by the side of the river and you're watching the leaves flow past and and some may flow past quicker than others, but the idea is to let them flow past because they are just thoughts rather than necessarily being reality. Yeah, there's there's a a few good visual analogies to that one is also clouds yeah clouds go by some are big clouds some are big dark clouds and some are clouds that are flitting by fast and others are going slow so we can i think the important thing is and this is something that i mean for all i'm not buddhist i mean the buddha was an amazing guy and it's a real shame that people think of him as the founder of a religion and mm. actually a great philosopher and psychologist yeah. and he um, famously said that we don't live a life we flow our life a continued flow. It's a flow of flux and change. Nothing's ever the same. And what you want to do is be there with the flow. So you need to see what's happening moment by moment as things are shifting and changing. Because normally, emotionally, things are shifting and changing inside us and we're not even aware that they're changing. They're so automatic inside us and so ingrained, we no longer see them. But once you start to see them, you can shape it and change it and this in neuroscientific terms is called neuroplasticity the ability that the mind is constantly being shaped by experience mm-hmm. and that unless we're careful it's going to shape us in ways we don't like and whereas we can with practice start to shape our minds in ways that we think are conducive to our own well-being and, and mindfulness is the learning the skill to do that uh-huh. And ultimately, not just for yourself, but for everybody around you. Yeah, absolutely. And so if I'm a listener to the show mm-hmm. and I, I'm um, associating with these uh, symptoms, should we call them? I've got a very busy mind. I've got these thoughts that um, I, I sort of blurt out and, and swear at drivers. Um, I know I'm slightly guilty of that myself. Mm-hmm. Um, how would someone go about starting to, to practice mindfulness because it isn't something where you just sit there and go, okay, I'm I'm now not going to think because naturally yeah. you just think. Yeah, it doesn't work. Um, yeah, I think the best thing I mean, I've got. I'm the author of three books on mindfulness, so I would obviously say you know, yeah, my books are good. But uh-huh. but as a starter, um, Professor Mark Williams, who's emeritus professor or was emeritus professor of psychology at Oxford University, so one of the world's leading psychologists. Uh, he wrote a book with a guy called Danny Penman um, called Mindfulness, Finding Peace in a Frantic World. To my mind, it's the best explanation about what mindfulness is and how to do it. And it comes with a CD with eight practices. So I think from that perspective, to understand what it is and learn how to do it, that's an, a lovely starting package. Mm-hmm. And it's Although it's written by a professor of psychology, I mean, he's written it 
and Danny, Danny Pendon is a journalist. So the two of them together have written it in a very layman's, easy to understand terms. Um, mindfulness is very simple. It's just very hard to remember to do. Yeah. The brain is so on automatic. It doesn't even want you to start to notice itself. Yeah. And, and that's often an excuse I think people can, or, or not an excuse, a reason people can use for not getting started is, actually, I'm too busy. Uh, would it be fair to say that's probably exactly the reason to um, start? Well, definitely. I think mindfulness is for everyone. Mm. It's not some esoteric tool, you know, for people who want to find, you know, nirvana or something like that. Yeah. It's just a method by which we can learn to see or perceive the world more accurately, deal with things that are destructive or unhealthy, especially internally, and just let them dissipate. And in their place, start to cultivate things that are really good and nurturing. Like, you know, to me, just right now in, in Hamilton, where I live, it's been a stunning day. You know, it's only been about three or four degrees, but uh-huh. every moment of it has been beautiful, low-level sunshine. You know, and the, the light and the shade has been great. And I've spent some of the time just stopping and appreciating that. You know, you hear the bird songs and, and, and things like that. Going for a walk, not even a walk walk, you know, around the lake or anything like that, but just walking to the car park, mm. noting how it feels to take steps, noticing what it's like to have fresh air in your face. Things like that. You do enough of that and it starts to tilt the balance inside your brain because we have stuffed ourselves with anxieties and worries and concerns and busyness for decades yeah and so it's going to take a bit of time and we need to start cultivating these other things so that they start to pop up in our mind automatically healthy things good things enjoyable yes. things appreciative things and so we just do that and as for the busyness you know everybody's busy but nobody forgets to eat very yeah. you know you don't forget to drink otherwise you would be dead yes so we it's a question of prioritizing and if you can set two minutes aside to just focus on your breath and start to see what your mind's like when you're breathing, then you've started the ball rolling. If you can do that two, three, four times a day, mm-hmm. 30 seconds, 60 seconds, start to make it part of the rhythm of your day. Yeah. And, and, and also just try and notice everyday things. When you take your first sip of a cup of tea, feel it, taste it, really taste it. Don't blether you know, to your friends while you're yeah. taking it. Just enjoy the experience. And you start to slowly but surely realize that most of our life is fabulous. Yeah. It's fabulous with everyday things that are mundane that we don't normally notice, let alone appreciate. But over time, you can start to do it. That also then makes your life very, very simple. Yeah. Because everyday things are enjoyable and you're happy and fulfilled with what you've already got. So you're not always searching for the next thing or thinking that if only you get this, then you'll be happy. Yeah. All just mental junk. And it helps to put things into to perspective. So if we're talking about people who are in, in business and, and, and if they listen to the show, it's likely they're in business with their family and the the frustrations and the, the um, challenges that are faced by that. But by taking a, a sort of step back and being aware of the world we're in and, and the beauty of it, it can put that into perspective as well and help to um, reconcile, reconcile and put a, a different emphasis on, on the purpose of the business and, and the purpose of the family. Exactly. To my mind, you know, obviously all stakeholders are should be part of a family business's concern. 
yeah. employees, the suppliers, customers, etc. However, you need to look at yourself first and foremost as depending on one's philosophy or faith or things like that, what we do know is you've only got one crack at this life. Uh-huh. And this life is made up of moments and those moments will one day no longer be there and you'll be dead and you yeah. can't then try anything about your life after that. So you've got to work this out now while, you, while you've got these moments. Mm-hmm. If you live more fully in a moment, you start to gain so much more from your life. Yeah. And as you do that cumulatively, you start to realize that that's what a fulfilled life is, mm-hmm. having fulfilled moments. You, in a moment, you can either go with your gut response, which is usually either junk or negative, or you can let that fall away and see if there's something more constructive can be done in that moment. Yeah. And if you just keep doing that, you start to realize that all the things you've been chasing after are already here. Yeah. You know, and I, I know that might sound twee and oversimplistic, but it's true. They're already here. I was doing this with a, a group um, of carers uh, yesterday, um, you know, people who are caring for family who are physically disabled, mentally disabled, etc. Uh-huh. And you know, they were talking about stresses and things, and I fully appreciate how much stress and difficulty they've got. But I said, look at us just right now. We're in a beautiful room. We've got central heating. We've got tea, we've got coffee. People have even brought cakes. Yeah. Our life right now is perfection. Yeah. We have everything we need. We've got good company. We're talking about things that matter to us. We're talking about things that matter to us that can help us. What more can a person want, given that we're in this room together? Mm. Nothing. That was it. And I said, well, you don't need to go climbing Mount Everest to, to feel fulfilled. Uh-huh. That might be for some people, but everyday life can be enough. Completely. And that's the same with family business. You know, you don't need to grow by 20%, 60%, you know, sort of every year or every five years or whatever. Just try and make it work for yeah. you and the people around you and try and make it a cohesive, nurturing thing in your life rather than a stressful thing that you have to cope with, you know, 12 hours a day. Yeah. And, and that's a shift of mindset. Mm. That. And mindfulness helps you make that shift. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember that it's, this isn't a case of perhaps somebody listening to this show and then thinking, right, I'll do five minutes of, of meditation uh, and then thinking, right, that's it, I'm done. It, it's, it, it is like going to a gym and keeping fit. It's something that you need to conti- continually do in order to, to get the, the most out of it because otherwise it's, there's no point in just doing it once and then thinking that's it I'm, I'm done exactly it's the equivalent it's, and the parallel with with um, physical health and exercise is, is very opposite um, if you want to run a marathon as part of your life trying to run a five mile run once a month and doing no other exercise is doomed to failure mm. the body needs to be acclimatized it needs to be slowly attuned to a little bit more and a little bit frequency of exercise and, and sensation. Similar with the mind, our mind has been programmed by our genes and by our life experiences for decades. Yeah. And we, if we want our mind to be and to feel certain things in certain ways, 
then we need to do quite a lot of work to start making it move that direction. Uh-huh. And mindfulness, if you have limited time and everybody does, it's better to do a few short bursts of it each day, uh-huh. even if it's just 30 seconds or a minute or two minutes or five minutes or whatever time you can make. And not just the meditative parts, you know, focusing on the breath and, and, and the body and all that, but just noticing what's going on, mm. your eyes, your ears, you know, your sense of touch, smell, taste. Just doing that lots of times is more useful to you in the long run than doing nothing for 10 days and then trying to do a 20-minute meditation. Yeah. And again, like, like uh, the, the physical fitness example, it's that it takes time to, to perhaps notice that, that it's being effective. Um, yeah. So, so you don't go to the gym once and, and come away um, fit. I, I've tried pr- pretty much every January for the last few years. You, you join the gym, <laughs> go a couple of times, don't get fit and, and give it up, or, or I do anyway. Um, but, but it's the same with, with, with mindfulness, is that it's not something that is an instant fix. You might, f- you might feel the benefit um, straight away, but, but in, in terms of it being effective, it needs to be something that is regularly practiced. Exactly. And I think that the best way to find out if mindfulness is working for you is not so much how you feel, although that sometimes can be an indicator. It's when your partner or your spouse or your kids or your parents or your friends or your colleagues start saying, you're a lot calmer these days, mm. you know, or you seem happier these days. And I hear this from, from people all the time. I mean, I do a, a free class um, here in Hamilton um, at the local university campus. And it's for the general public. It's drop-in, no charge. You can come anytime you want. You don't have to stay, you know, weeks in, weeks, weeks out. Mm-hmm. So doing that for six years. And the amount of people who have come up and said, I didn't think this, I mean, I've always enjoyed it, but I didn't think this was particularly working for me. And then my husband said, you're so much easier to live with nowadays and mm. that mindfulness stuff. You know, and, and that's when you, you realise that you are changing even when you're not aware you're changing. Yeah. yeah but I think this is so, so important in family business yeah. and, and in family meetings. You know, the ability to be in control of your emotions, mm-hmm. the ability to censor yourself from just reacting to everybody, everything everybody says and just to allow other people the space to talk and express themselves, yeah. to show that you are listening so that you're encouraging people to have views and to accept difference of opinion. Completely. And I, I think we um, touched on it earlier, but the the stigma around talking about feelings and, and mental health and um, it is falling away. And it's okay that, I mean, again, general um, sweeping statement here, but, but us blokes are, are perhaps worse at it than um, our, our uh, female counterparts. But it, it, that is changing as well. I, I, I hear more and more men talking about their emotions and how they're feeling and, and things like that. So it's something that, that can be brought up in, in a, a family meeting environment is to say, well, why don't we try this? Let's, let's just give it a go. Yeah. And I think, I think you're absolutely right about men generally. Um, on both fronts, I think men have been emotionally stymied or blocked for a long, long time now um, and terribly harmfully to their health. Yeah. I'm, I'm on the suicide prevention board for the local health, NHS trust team. And 
you know, I see this. It's middle-aged men are the most likely people to kill themselves of all age groups mm. um, and genders. Um, and it is changing dramatically, I think, because we are opening up as a society in many regards. And there's some great work done on that by people for the last couple of decades. So I think it is now opening. And some people may be blocked still, and, and that can cause a problem within a family business setting. But the other people can learn to live with that and just work around it and, and be more open amongst themselves. Um, so there are various ways of dealing with these things. Um, but mindfulness is, a, I think, you know, in five, ten years' time, we'll look back and we'll say that is a prerequisite yeah. for a good family business yeah. culture. I agree. I think it will be completely. And I think that's the sooner that happens, the better, really. Absolutely. It is something that um, has a lot of positive impacts. Um, so as we said at the sort of outset of the um, show, you're the chief exec of the Scottish Family Business Association as well. Yep. Um, can you explain a little bit more about what your role involves and um, what you're sort of um, hoping to achieve within that role? Yeah, it's evolved. I mean, we started it in 2005 as a direct result of us, when I say us, George Stevenson and I um, and a few other family businesses who had been through Barbara Murray's um, Glasgow Caledonian University Centre for Family Enterprise programme, oh. which was very much an executive education about family businesses by family, global family business experts. And we gained so much from that that when Barbara was headhunted to Lausanne, um, um, she left and the person that took over was really good but she was more academic minded and more purely based on the psychology side Right. and so we didn't feel we were getting as much from that so George said we should set up something like a trade association and I was asked because I had left the business by this time uh -huh. we were all still running their own family businesses um, I was asked to set it up so I set it up in a part time as a part time CEO which I still am. And the whole purpose was to help business families flourish. So the whole notion was turning family business into business families. And that right from the start, the priority was threefold. One is to help individuals flourish within a family business setting, to help the families remain in harmony. And thirdly, if those other two things are achieved to keep the business flourishing. So it was the opposite of a standard economic growth model. Uh -huh. um, this was always about helping the individuals and the families yeah. uh, and realising that the business is a tool for them and for their purposes. And that's still what we do. I mean, when we started, no university other than Glasgow Cali was doing anything about family business in Scotland. And we've now got five or six doing, you know, MBAs or, yeah. or modules within the MP, MBAs, something that, you know, within a decade we, we transformed the academic side. We trained up lawyers and accountants and wealth advisors, financial advisors on what they needed to know about family businesses. Mm. And still, I would say, by far the minority of um, professional advisors really understand family businesses enough. Yeah. To properly advise them, and it's mm. great. you know, folk like you um, are delving into this to the depth that it requires. 
So we did a lot of that and still do. So signposting people to the best education, the best training that the others are doing. Uh-huh. And we helped other people set up family business consultancies and family business support groups. So we were never um, at any time possessive or trying to be territorial. You uh-huh. know, we are the only ones trying to help family businesses. We were trying to do the opposite. And I said this at the outset to my fellow directors that we would know we've achieved all we um, wanted to achieve for family businesses if we would be redundant, that they no longer needed a family business association yeah. because all the advisors and all the people around them who should be supporting them and know enough would be uh-huh. there. And we're not quite there yet. I guess most of what I do now um, personally is I just react to phone calls. We've now got enough stuff going out via others um, that there's enough content, good content going out to family businesses. Uh-huh. We don't need to do that any longer. If we see anything being missed, we'll, we'll just add to it. So now I guess I could be perceived as being a hopefully an honest, objective first protocol. So I regularly, once or twice a week, get a phone call or an email saying, you know, I'm really struggling with something in the family business. You know, my, my wife and I are splitting up or something like those things. My father's not talking to me because of this. Um, and they say, I'm just looking for advice. And I'll say, I'll just meet you. And I'll just go and we'll meet in some cafe, quiet place. Uh-huh. And I'll just listen most of the time for 90 minutes, two hours, and then say, I think I understand enough about where you're coming from. I could recommend any one of these three or four people. Mm. And that would vary dependent on what they've told me. And I'd just become a signposter. Um, in seven or eight years ago, I'd be the person that would be going out to them right. to help the whole family business consultancy. But uh-huh. because we've helped train up and nurture enough people within Scotland to, to be able to do that, I now no longer need to spend my time doing that. And so uh-huh. a cleaner role. And I think the mindfulness helped. We understand that should be the direction of travel for us. Yeah. And so that's essentially it. And um, I'd like to write more about my own family business story, but all writings, I do a weekly column in mindfulness for the main broadsheet up here, the Herald, the Sunday, Uh and I do newsletters and things. So I'm trying to fit in the time to to write up my family business experience, throw them together to be a book as well. Um, And I think that would be something to add to the Family Business Association's content for people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And are there any sort of common challenges or issues that, that families are coming to you with more than others? I think, sadly, the most common still remains relationship and the lack of communication yeah. about key issues. You know, succession, obviously, is a, is a biggie. Mm. Also... I think more and more now, especially the next generation, um, you know, people in their 20s and 30s, just they, they have a much broader perspective of what life is for. Mm. And I'm 59, you know, than my generation. And I think that they love the idea of the family business, but they also love the idea of having a life outside the family business. Yeah. And they're um, conflicted about that. You know, can you have your cake and eat it? Yeah. Sometimes they just 
want to have a chat about that with, with somebody. Mm. Who, and, and you can say, yes, you can do it, but it requires then clarification and structuring yeah. to, to do these things and the consent of your family or the, or the business. Um, but that, that's an interesting new thing coming through. Also, the, the whole that millennial generation, like, like my two children who were you know, photographed or filmed playing in computers at the age of two. You know, yeah. you know who, who are, this, is, this is their digital world. Uh-huh. Um, they can perceive business in a completely different way from those of us who to learn technology yeah. um, as adults. And they have amazing insights and amazing ideas. Mm. And sometimes that conflicts so powerfully with, quotation marks, the way we've always done it here. Yeah. Um, especially in a family business that's like third or fourth or fifth generation and, and still has the, I was going to say the positive side of Dickensian culture, but I don't know if it's <laughs> the positive side of Dickensian culture. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Some of the, the lovely slow craft aspect of, of business you know, that's still very human and still very personal and what you don't want to do is lose that very very personal relationship thing especially with customers and long suppliers yeah. but on the other hand the 21st century is a very different century yeah completely and, and different generations prefer different le- levels of um, I guess, c- contact in terms of the relationship they have with, with people they buy goods and services from. So s- someone who has grown up on a on a smartphone or, or, or tablet is more than happy to to buy based on someone else's review on a, on a website, mm-hmm. uh, whereas somebody who hasn't had that is more likely to want to go and buy in person and, and to sort of kick and feel the, the product a little bit more. Uh, and, and I guess the, the trick is with the, the generational shift is to – Try and embrace both. Yes, a, a classic example in my own family is, is my daughter, who's just about to turn twenty-three. She's just finished a master's degree, and she, for the last two year, two and a half years, she's had a part-time job that's online, finding cheap flights for an American online cheap flight company. Uh-huh. So, so they sell a subscription, annual subscription to people, and every day they give them opportunities for rarely found cheap flights right. across the world. So it's a great company. And it's gone from, she was the fourth employee and they're now about 50 employees wow. in a half years. But Katie, my daughter, has never met the people who employed her. Um, she's only ever met one of her 49-ish um, colleagues. <laughs> done online. Wow. And yet these are friends, you know, these are people who are chatting, you know, on Skype and and you know, doing stuff on Instagram and, and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and this is a hugely successful business. And it, it kind of gives proof or, or lied to the proof, the suggestion that, you know, the generation coming up, this digital communication isn't real communication. Mm. You know, it, it can work that way, both business and in terms of personal um, relationship. Yeah. Um, it's, it's fascinating to see this. And yeah, I think it can work both ways, but that then requires, again, the openness of communication, yeah. the ability to see more deeply and broadly and to not get caught up in your own habitual ways of seeing things. Mm. As much for the young generation as the old generation, yeah. it's amazing how quickly you can get fixated on just digital. Yeah. 
it has to be digital innovation, otherwise we're, we're going to fall over, we're going to fail. But exactly, yeah. yeah I, I get that. When all somebody wants is a you know, packet of crisps from a shop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so, so, to, so to bring things to a conclusion, would there be one tip that you would give to um, other family businesses, given your experiences? Yes, or, or more a general statement, I guess. Put family ahead of business, but always understand within that prioritising that the business can give so much to the family. Uh-huh. So that's that, in a nutshell, because I think that if you just put the business first, then the relationships can be destroyed. Uh-huh. If you just put the family first without thinking about the business, then your wealth and your security can be destroyed. But if you put the family first, but keep an eye on realising that the business helps the family be bound together and safe mm-hmm. and loving, then, in other words, you're putting the business in its proper context and not ahead of itself. Yeah. Fantastic. That's a, a great tip. Um, and where can our audience find out more about you? Well, there's um, Martin Stepik. I mean, one of the beauties with my name is that I think there's only one guy in Czech Republic who shares my name in the world. Right. Um, so if you Google Martin Stepik, that's S-T-E-P-E-K. And my own website is martinstepik.com. Um, I have a, a mindfulness products company called 10 for Zen. Uh-huh. Um, and there's the Scottish Family Business Association, sfba.co.uk. Um, Fantastic. And we will put links up to um, all of those in the show notes. Um, So if anyone does want to uh, get in touch or or find out more about you, they uh, certainly can do so. Um, So Martin, thank you so much for your time and your insights. That that was um, incredibly insightful um, chat. I really appreciate you um, sparing the time to to talk to us today. It's a real pleasure. And I really love the work that you're doing. And um, yeah, keep up the good work. Thank you. That's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to leave us a review, please feel free to do so on iTunes. If you want to get in touch, you can find out more information at www.fanbizpodcast.com. We'll see you again soon.